sounds great. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Planet Psycom. I'm Sarah Yo, and I am joined by my co-host. Is that what we're calling you these days? Patrick Vado. What do we call and, each other? What's in a name? I don't know. And two wonderful guests today. Um, we have Dr. Jacqueline Goldstein. I should have asked how to pronounce your last name. I am so sorry. From Perfectly. Sci- yes, nailed it. Um, from Psycom Bites and Dr. Shu Pei Yuan from Northern Illinois University. Um, we will go in that order and do introductions. Jacqueline, could you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Thank you. Yeah, this is so fun to be here. Uh, So I am Dr. Jacqueline Goldstein. Uh, My day job is I am the instructional designer at the MIT Communication Lab. So I get to lead and develop workshops, training engineers in communication and peer coaching best practices. And then my other day job, or one of them, is the co-creator of Bytes, where we digest the latest science communication research. So my background is in astronomy and more recently in science communication from UW-Madison. And uh, I love podcasting. I love connecting with other science communicators, other science communication trainers, you know, researchers. And so this is just so fun to be here at the interface of it all. So thank you. Thank you. So Jacqueline, with your background, did you and Sarah overlap? Because if I recall, Sarah did a stint at UW-Madison. You know, we we checked in about that and we, I think, just missed each other. Yeah, I think we, yeah. I mean, the fact that we had to check in about it probably indicates that we did not quite overlap at uh, Wisconsin. Um, But... Let's have our second guest introduce herself, Shu Pei. Hi, uh, I'm Shu Pei Yuan. I am an associate professor at Northern Illinois University. My teaching job, or is mostly like I also involved with uh, environmental studies here at NIU. So I teach classes like that, like uh, kind of having students at the both communication and, and environmental studies. Research wise, I mostly do how to increase the quality of science communication, not just the quantity now. So I don't care how many more scientists or science communicators join this field. Mostly like people get things right, like say the right things. Mm-hmm. So so that's mostly I do. And that can be starting from like very big things, like how inf- infrastructure, how we support them better, provide them resource training to very small things, like what kind of style I'm using today, what kind of tone, what kind of jokes I can use. So there are many ways to increase the quality of science communication. And that's mostly what I'm interested in as well. That's awesome. I didn't uh, realize you were uh, involved with environmental studies. That's pretty cool. Um, that I'm sure you get some great students. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty awesome. And uh, like, it's interesting to have them like, you know, together with the communication student when they do campaign projects. It's, it's really fun. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Um, yeah. So we brought you both here today because uh, we thought actually um, I'm going to turn to Jacqueline to the conception of this idea because I've just gotten off a plane. I just got off a plane last night and I'm trying to think of the how this idea came about and um yeah happy to take over there yes how did how did we get here uh it has been a while right it it has so this idea came up through just some informal chats between you and i 
but essentially SciComm Bytes was created uh, by myself and uh, Dr. Stephanie Deppie in response to the kinds of questions that we were hearing at science communication conferences, like how do we connect research with practice? And as avid uh, consumers of this research and wanting to communicate about it, we thought that the Science Bites umbrella would be a great way to present that like digestible science communication to the people who aren't necessarily going to do literature searches, but just want to know kind of like, what is the point? What's the newest research out there? And why is it interesting? And how might I use it? And so as we, you know, publish our articles and all of them are chosen by the authors themselves, we tried to have a pretty uh, diverse demographic of authors in the sense that we defined them to be in our hiring call as um, early career science communicators. And then we let them define what that meant. So some of them are researchers, some of them are students, some of them are practitioners, some of them are journalists. And in some way they are uh, new to the field of the science of science communication. So we let them choose what they think is pertinent and relevant and interesting and put that out there. But then ultimately we want to know like, is this useful to our you know, science communication community? And we're not yet at the stage where we are creating evaluations, but we want to make sure that we're thinking about how is this actually bridging uh, research and practice? So in our chat, I thought, you know, wouldn't it be cool if this was a network connection? So based on what our authors and you know up and coming you know, science communicators are thinking about and wanting to talk about that you know more uh, established science you know communication researchers that we could get together with the authors and I'm not the author of this particular article um, Megan couldn't be with us today um, and just have there be more of a discussion and have this build relationship and uh, bring some of the conversation around this to uh, to your listeners. Yeah, like that's that. really cool. Yeah, that's super great. No, I mean, it's that's absolutely a great way to do that. So I guess the question then becomes, if the authors solicit SciComm Bytes for articles and writing, how did that relationship start between uh, you and Choupet? So this um, particular piece was chosen by our author, Megan Widows, um, and we really just offer them full scope of uh, what they want to write about. And so we offer some support in that, in the sense that like I have science communication um, research uh, training. So if they have questions about a particular piece um, or we look over the summaries and using our understanding, we can see if there's anything that's maybe contextually incorrect, but otherwise we just let them um, go. So you know, maybe the beauty of this is I didn't previously have a you know relationship, but now I do um, because, you know, Megan chose to write about this and we decided to make this podcast and you know bring us together. So, you know, I would I would think that this is actually a great uh, example of how you know this is creating that bridge. That's great. Um, when you 
I'm, when you go about generally finding an article that an author is going to write about, what is their process for doing that? Is it just something that they stumbled upon or something that they've done literature search on or something else that's come up on another news outlet? How does, how does that process usually go down? Yeah, you know, it is mostly driven by their personal interests. So uh, people who tend to already be interested in podcasts will maybe learn more about podcasting or social media, more about social media. You know, for me, I'm really interested in strategy. So uh, I only wrote uh, articles for Psycom Bytes in the beginning. I turned more into the administrative role, but so I wrote about strategy. And so I think it is that personally driven interest, which then brings a variety of topics to, um, you know, to the website. And so we have provided them with uh, places like where we would go um, to look for papers, or maybe they encounter something at a conference. One of the things that science, uh, Psycombites authors um, now do is go to science communication conferences and write little summaries of the um, the sessions and the research and put that out there. Sometimes, uh, you know, myself or other authors will see something and think this is really cool, and we'll share it with each other through our our Slack. Uh, we recently had uh, someone contact us and said, "Hey, uh, I have this paper. Would someone want to write about it?" And you know, we said yes. So. Where, you know, it, it just comes from this variety, I think, um, you know, back to that that relational aspect, kind of the one thing that we try to maintain, however, is that authors are not promoting their own work. So there isn't this conflict of interest. So there are other venues for that uh, already, like the conversation um, is, you know, great summary articles um, by researchers about the research that they do. But we really wanted to have the people who are looking for research kind of determine uh, what they think is is interesting, and that uh, we just ask that they not write about something uh, that they were personally affiliated with in the creation of. So I guess that then begs the I guess the question then becomes how do you get the writers? Like where where do they come from? Who are they? Because if they have a great say in what gets written about, I mean they got how 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 does how does that happen? Mm-hmm. So. Science Bites in general, as the umbrella organization, uh, tends to have more of a history of soliciting graduate students from a particular discipline to write about research papers in that discipline. So one of the first ones was Astrobytes. So almost all the authors for Astrobytes are uh, astronomy graduate students. And there's a number of other Science Bites. Um, What we wanted to do Uh, based on this diverse demographic that we were encountering in science communication conferences was broaden who we define to be um, an expert um, or using expertise in science communication. So we very explicitly chose not to only solicit from science communication academic departments. So what we did is we put out a call saying, if you uh, uh, self-identify as a early career science communicator, however that is, and you're interested in reading about and digesting and writing about science communication research, please apply. And it doesn't mean that they've had to have previous experience with uh, research. 
um, which is why uh, like people like myself and Stephanie and Naveen who do have research experience are there to uh, look at the content to make sure that you know nothing is being taken out of context because in order to really understand research literature you have to understand the context behind it but many of them already have and some of them uh and then we we started to distribute this call through an intentionally curated and also broad list so we sent it out to people that we personally had relationships with to the science communication departments that we had relationships with, but also through different science communication, like Twitter accounts, um, people that we had met at conferences who said, I wish that my students had some place to write about and learn more about because other than this class, I don't know what resources to give to them. Um, we distributed it to, uh, to email lists. And so we really tried to uh, kind of sample our um, like familiar, familiarity with the science communication um, uh, practice, research, and training landscape to create those solicitations and then have people apply um, with a sh- like a short sample article and, you know, just just went from there. Nice. And how many, how many authors would you say Bytes has had in its time, do you think? So we currently have about 10 authors. And the uh, the intention is that it's the same 10 authors that will write over the course of a year. Um, about one author writes every other month mm. and then edits every other month. So there's um, editing practice as well. And uh, they get to get to choose what they write. We will eventually solicit for guest authorship just so we can have a more, you know, a, a broader representation um, or for authors who can't uh, commit to you know writing uh, regularly for for a year um, but uh, you know we're we're just starting to kind of think about how to keep it sustainable mm-hmm. and how to uh, keep it accountable to the community um, you know we we currently have some funding through the science communication trainers network that allows us to compensate their authors both for the articles and for going to conferences which we're really proud of because uh, not many of the science bites sites are able to do that and so we want to make sure that this is not only a professional development opportunity for them but it's also a paid professional development opportunity for right. them so that they and others can you know can value that. Um, and so we have this cohort and then in uh, probably November or December, we will be uh, soliciting for the next round of authors and probably keep it about this number for now. Astrobytes has so many authors that a new author writes every single day. Oh, wow. wow. Right. Yeah. So we publish, we publish once a week. So so that is the difference. I, I guess that was something that I didn't quite grasp until right now is that not only is this a strategy for producing SciComm, but it sounds also like a strategy for developing and mentoring SciComm. So yeah, exactly. How how do you go about what what sort of mentoring you mentioned editing, right? They mm-hmm. write one and then edit one. What other sorts of opportunities for development and mentorship are there within SciComm Bytes? Yeah, and I I will uh, say that science bites in general that science is their bites. Model. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> Words. Well, it's it's both. So science bites the umbrella, which umbrellas all of the different like astrobytes, psychon bites, etc. They have the mission of being open source 
and of helping to provide development opportunities for graduates and also help other graduate students establish their own bite sites. So that mentorship model kind of comes from the top, which is one of the reasons that we decided to um, kind of follow this, this umbrella. But personally for SciCom Bytes, we, um, so we, you know, wrote, wrote up a bunch of documentation, like here are the things to consider. Uh, here are the things to pull out. Um, here is an example structure that might be useful. Um, you know, I really found like the conversation um, structure to be really useful. So uh, I, you know, we created a template for them to do that. And then we, you know, usually have two authors right now who, sorry, two other people who would look over the article, one for just style and clarity, and then usually someone else for anything that is maybe like contextually, um, that may be contextually wrong, which there really hasn't, hasn't been that much. Um, but then we will, you know, pass opportunities to them that we encounter in other science communication networks. So through SciCommerce um, or through the Science Communication Trainers Network. And then more recently, uh, we will encourage them to go to science communication conferences where they, uh, yes, are being asked to um, write summaries of the um, of the sessions, but they might go and uh, when they previously might not have gone either because of the cost of um, uh, registration, which will sometimes be compensated, sometimes we'll cover it. And uh, they have the ability to meet people and they have the ability to learn about even more research. Uh, we've had a session where um, one of the inclusive science communication papers was covered in a science communication trainers network convening and that author was uh, invited to participate in the panel. And so we are trying to connect them with other people, other research opportunities, um, other writing and fellowship opportunities, and really just be there to make sure they feel supported and let their voices lead. Isn't there also a fellowship that you do? There is not a fellowship that we do. Oh, I'm sorry, that I do. There's a fellowship that I do, not Psycom Bites. Um, so I am doing a, um, a fellowship with ARIS, uh, Advancing Research in Society. And I am doing that in partnership with Dr. Dion Rossiter, who's the Executive Director of Science at Cal. And we are working to uh, take the National Science Foundation broader impacts uh, policies that was developed by ARIS previously by uh, by NABI, um, the National Association for Broader Impacts, and reinterpret that through the lens of inclusive science communication as put out by um, the Inclusive Science Communication Starter Kit uh, from the Inclusive Science Communication Symposium. And, uh, you know, as uh, graduate students and uh, research professionals are developing their their broader impacts as we're trying to really bring uh, inclusion into into the practice. Then we would like them to be able to look at something and be confronted with questions that maybe they previously wouldn't have considered, like what kind of relationship do you have with the people who uh, you are doing a broader impacts projects with. Um, we talk about, is there really a difference between audience and participants or uh, should they really be the same thing? Um, 
And so uh, we'll have the chance for about a year to really think about this and uh, and reinterpret that through the lens of inclusive science communication. Very cool. Um, so I, I was just, you know, as you were talking a little bit earlier about um, having your writers and your authors go to science communication conferences, Shupay and I actually just saw each other at a um, communication conference, uh, the annual conference, the annual meeting of the Association for Education in Journalism and Mass Communication, AEJMC. We're not uh, good with short names, I suppose, but... (laughs) Um, but one thing we were thinking, and Shupi and I, there's a division um, communicating science, health, environment, and risk, and we're both uh, officers in this division. And one thing I was just thinking as you were talking, Jacqueline, is it would be great if we had some writers for SciComm Bytes at some of our sessions, uh, our research sessions in particular, um, where a lot of sort of new and emerging research is being shared with our community, right? But one thing that we lack, frankly, is is um, people to translate that research into practice, right? I feel like we, we have a lot of theoretical kind of research that we're sharing, but there aren't a lot of practitioners. Usually in the room, it's um, researchers from other institutions, right, in, in science communication um, I feel like that's probably right, Shupe, right? Yeah. Mostly researchers there. Yeah, and uh, I think like having someone who isn't completely doing the research part will provide some really valuable insights, like inspire more research. That's how I honestly like kind of start thinking about things more practical. Another conference, a conference I can think about is like Society for Risk Analysis. They have risk communication, but many other people, they actually did like invite practitioners who do like science engagement before doing talks. I think like they had a very good conversations there as well. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And I wonder maybe uh, next year for AJMC, we might think about um, having some SciComm Bytes writers come Jacqueline we can we can chat more about that you're not gonna get that's a great idea you're not gonna get somebody to live tweet it (laughs) we try we tried you know we have I will say our comm share which is communicating science health environment and risk division at AJMC uh the people on this team are great we have a media team and there's some of them couldn't attend the conference this year and so they had kind of uh an off-site team team that would amplify the tweets that the on-site media team and Shupei was part of our media team this year um, and they would amplify kind of the tweets and the Facebook posts and, and all the social media posts that our um, on-site media team members were at and so uh, it was really great I'm, I'm actually I, I'm currently the head of the division and I'm actually rotating off in, in October. So we do uh, head for a year. Shupei is uh, secretary now of the division and is uh, going to be working her way up there. But I, I think this would be a really great way to to encourage sort of more collaboration at the intersection of research and practice because we'd have practitioners, right, uh, where the research is happening. Um, and so we yeah, I would love to talk more about that. And I think that, you know, Shupei, what you said about having perspectives there from, um, you know, people who are interested, but not necessarily, you know, deep in the research, I think that's exactly the value that the authors bring. 
And along those lines in each of our articles, um, which I should say that one of the instructions that we ask our authors is to do as objective as possible of a summary of the article. Um, understanding nothing can really be that objective, but the intention isn't to analyze it. It's not to connect it to, to current events. It's to pr provide something that is um, hopefully just a little bit of knowledge um, that uh, people can, if interested, uh, pursue more uh, like looking into or you know connect with us. And so in order to bridge that, how does this actually relate to real life? At the top of each article, we have um, two pieces of information. One is the like TLDR, too long, didn't read, <laughs> uh, one or two sentence summary of the entire article if someone just wants to scan it. Which is um, exactly what my dad said about my dissertation. <laughs> Wait, your parents looked Where's at yours? The TLDR? No, yeah, my, I, well, I, when you email it to them, right, in a PDF, they're sort of forced to look at it. I'm like, look at this thing I'm proud of. I don't, even, know? And, I don't even think my committee looked at my dissertation. The, the thing is, my dad didn't just say TLDR. He said, too dry. <laughs> didn't read. So it wasn't even Ouch. that it was too long. It was too dry. So. Harsh. Harsh. Well, let me um, let me uh, assuage um, the authors of the articles that we write about. We don't think they're too dry, <laughs> um, but we do want to bring you know the message to the top. But we also have the second piece of information, which is why I chose this paper. So we want to know for the you know for the Psycom Bytes authors why this one. What were you thinking about? How did this relate to the kinds of questions that you're already asking? How is this useful? And uh, everyone kind of has their own perspective. And, um, you know, that I think is a really valuable piece of information that's previously been missing when practitioners are looking at research. This is like, okay, like, so what? How, how, how do I relate to this? And by seeing how the author can relate to it, I think that can provide, you know, a step in the, the right direction. That's a yeah, good to tactic. Me it seems, uh, <laughs> see, we've, <laughs> we've talked about goals and tactics and objectives, but we'll, we'll ask, we'll ask Shupay about this. She knows way more about that. But before we get there, one of the things I was thinking is that um, Psycom Bytes seems like a really good gateway to the literature, right? Um, like, here's where you start. And here's the short little thing that pulls you in. I also appreciate the why you picked this article, little blurb, because I think it also offers some transparency, right, for the author. Um, I was interested in this. And so here, you know, here's here's what I'm looking for. And so, like you said, Jacqueline, when practitioners are looking at psychombites, it's perhaps also something to um, relate to. Right. I'm looking for X, Y and Z. And this is what I think, you know, will help. Mm -hmm. You know, also that's oh, I'm sorry. Did I cut you off, Jacqueline? No, go ahead. Go. All right. Right on. Sarah, that made me think of something that is often a barrier to introduction in a field, which is you don't necessarily know what all of the formative pieces of research that people, you know, keep 
citing and have cited for a long time, there isn't necessarily a body of those that encompass that has any sort of TLDR. And then you have to read something that's utterly incomprehensible from the 1960s where the methodology is completely different and the writing style is different and the word choice is different, but everybody uses this as this is where it came from. Is there any consideration or push to sort of create little curated groups of this is where the field came from in a Psycombytes TLDR sort of idea? This oh, is a question for Shupay or it's for whoever. I don't know. I just okay. thought of well, it. And so I said that's, it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's a good thing. I don't just say everything. I think, of, no, I'm just kidding, Patrick. <laughs> um, no, I was thinking, actually, that's a great point. I, I would think. So I, I, I think like, so what we do in grad school, right, is we go to these seminars and we read all these seminal papers. And now we have this like body of background knowledge. And I think that's what you're alluding to, Patrick. Uh, is there for the practitioner that type of thing, but not a 16 week seminar where you have to read multiple, multiple papers a week, but instead like a Psychom Bytes uh, genesis of this area, right? And one of the things in Psychom, I think, science communication, <laughs> I think, is that um, you'd have to read because we're so interdisciplinary and and communication is born of other disciplines you would have to be focused on a theory is what i'm thinking i don't know shupe let me know what you think but like i think about framing for example right where there's um two different traditions that framing came from and so you you know you'd have to have a little bite-sized piece about that one theory versus media agenda setting or something i don't know I mean, I, I think that's something good and bad about like researching this part, like theory helps you to explain why we found this. So it's not like just a random, random like antecedent, like something like a anecdotal evidence that happens and the kind of things. But also sometimes like theory does limit like what we can do. And uh, I don't know, like I, I, I like uh, like having ideas like, you know, inspired by just something I see, something like uh, I read, like I listen to your podcast or some story heard of that. Let's research whether that's something. Then, you know, wh whenever you write into a paper, they said, what's the theory that theoretical framework behind it? Well, how do you support it? Like, what's the contribution to theory? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that would be interesting, actually, um, which maybe gets us back to who what what do psychombites writers like who are they i was going to say what do they look like and i'm like well they look like normal people uh, <laughs> they look like regular everyday people but you know are they how many authors are also researchers how many authors have kind of the skills to or even the motivation right it's, it's like motivation and ability but motivation maybe might be more important here to to actually dive into the literature about um that the origins or the history of a theory, you know, the psychom bites for the grad seminar where you would learn about media effects or so strategies. we're applying so we're applying Shupe's methodology to this idea within psychom bites. Right. Yeah, it's an it's an absolutely valid question. Um but before we move on to that, I just want to plug two sources that I think um could address some of the uh, TLDR for the broader field. Um and one of them, uh, so be, because Psychombytes is very, that the scope of what we do is article specific, more of the synthesis, um, I think the link 
uh, from Alan Alda Center is doing more of that uh, synthesis of information theory based and some of that like SciComm 101 in the broader scope. And we've had some um, partnership and crossover with the link. So that is an uh, a great resource. Um, and the other one, which I think is a beautiful and very unique resource, um, is a book recently published by Dr. Uh, Rehana Maktoufi. Um, it's called Communication Lessons from the Wild, Cognitive Biases, Effective Communication Strategies, and Principles of Connection. And she writes about the uh, like fundamental models and theories of science communication, uh, framing um, uh, motivated reasoning in these beautiful, like nature-based stories that help put them into, uh, you know, a perspective. So would uh, highly recommend anyone uh, interested in ATLDR of the most, you know, relevant uh, science communication theories to to go look for her book. Oh, Jacqueline. Um, yes. Yeah. 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 Ray is Ray is great. Ray is also an artist and an illustrator. Yeah. And Jacqueline, are you talking about the book with illustrations? Yes. And those are all original illustrations. I'm going to plug Ray's Etsy oh. shop. Ray also has an Etsy shop with some of her illustrations that are mm -hmm. awesome. Links uh, in the I description. Yep. yep. Continue to plug. Um, I recently bought her work off Etsy and is in my office and everyone that stops by is amazed. And I can only plus a thousand for that. Me too. I, I also I love postcards. I like writing postcards. So I bought some of her postcards with her art on it. And it's yeah, it's awesome. It's really fun. OK, sorry. I got distracted by Etsy <laughs> and pretty things. Uh, my bad. My bad. Let's get back. <laughs> Let's get back to this. Um, yes. So in terms of your question of, you know, who the authors are in terms of, you know, what their skills are, you know, that was a question that Stephanie and I discussed in the beginning in terms of what previous skills and training were going to be required from people to be able to write about this because, uh, you know, research is a skill set, contextual knowledge is a skill set. And, uh, you know, thinking about, so my, my background is primarily in astronomy research. Um, I had to really get um, guidance to understand that I could read a scientific publication and be able to criticize it and say why I didn't think it was the strongest argument in a way that someone who you know hasn't had that guidance wouldn't necessarily be able to pick up on. But we uh, ultimately decided that we were going to, I think, trust the um, the knowledge and the skill set of the authors that applied and be there um, to course correct if we felt like they were going off course in a way that we could recognize because of our personal academic training. And, you know, so far I can only think of maybe like one example where, you know, an author said something that because my research experience in science communication, I was able to say, okay, you said that this has never been done. That's not true. This has been done. But, you know, other than that, um, they are, um, you know, pretty much right, right on course. And if, you know, if they aren't either we're not catching it or, um, we, you know, want to hear from, from people. So one of the things that we ask our authors to do is after they write the article to, to, um, email the author and say, hello, I wrote about your article. You can find it here. Um, you know, please let me know if you, you know, want to follow up 
about it. Um, and because we're not asking them to do any analysis, we um, and we're asking them to really follow the the scope of the paper and summarize what they took out of it, that they, in essence, are are guided by the content that's already in the paper. And, you know, if it's a, a questionable concern, I'm sorry, a questionable conclusion that is, you know, a hot topic in the field of science communication research, um, then great. I hope that the summary can spark that that discussion. But if, you know, I think one step of the research being translated into, um, you know, practice and to have it be accessible is what do people take out of it? And so if people who are scientifically trained, even if it's not in a, um, in the field of science communication, you know, are really getting it wrong, then maybe that also says something about the content of, of the paper. So I think we have like a, a multifaceted approach to making sure that they're not um, creating um, like incorrect or misinformed summaries. Um, and we want to bring sure that their perspective is you know valid when they're interpreting the research. Um, and I think we are, you know, we try to be a horizontal um, organization where, you know, if there's a like a problem, like we want to hear about it, we want to grow. Um, we uh, you know, our experts only in the sense that, you know, we have a certain amount of experience and we um, want to be able to grow from that experience. So um, I don't think that uh, we're, we're we're worried about getting something wrong. So so long as hopefully someone in the community will care enough to be able to, um, you know, bring that up. Nice. This is actually a great segue. So um, not to put anyone on the spot, but I'm going to do it because that's what people do when they say not to put you on the spot is they really follow up by putting you on the spot, right? Like, I feel like that's a no thing. pressure. Yeah, Go no pressure, but actually. Go get him, Sarah. Go get him. Yeah, thank you. Sorry. <laughs> now that I've made that awkward. Um, so I guess in that sense, I'm going to turn to Shupe here and say, well, what did, what did you, what did you think? Are there conclusions you want to add to the Psycom Bytes article? Are there, uh, is there more of the TLDR that we want uh, readers of the Psycom Bytes article to know? I mean, I think as researchers, I'm always like, yes, and you should know this, but maybe, maybe the Psycom Bytes writer actually got it right here and not actually got it right, but like, you know, is better that it's short. I'm going to stop rambling and let Shupei answer the question about <laughs> what do you think about the TLDR in the little box on the Psycom Bytes article? No, first of all, I think it's excellent because like after, for example, after I publish an article, I always thought I want to write a popular piece too, or I want to do something Ooh. exactly like what we're doing that. Then I got lazy, I got busy that it never happened. And then I always feel like, like, the exposure of my work is very limited because I couldn't, if someone else is doing that, that makes me feel even like worth more of the stuff that I'm doing too. So I think that's actually doing, and then maybe like, honestly, some collaborations will be nice. I'm, I'm grateful you guys reached out to me. I'm also like, if some in the future, any writers reach out to me, say I'm interested in this piece, like, would like to write something and they could just do a fact check something. And I don't think that just works for us who study SignCon. Even I think someone who study like STEM, any STEM field, I think there will be a almost a, I wouldn't say better way, but a very efficient way of doing things instead of saying this, this scientist has to learn how to write well. 
it's a lot of work to do that. So, yeah. so yeah. I like the kind of like a creating a network and creating a like a central hub for these types of like engagement. Yeah, I'm, I really appreciate that you say that, actually. Um, and I will say that when uh, journalists reach out or writers reach out to me, I, I try to make time to share the work because I I don't have the time or the inclination to write a popular piece. I mean, I probably should have, like you said, should be more of an inclination to write a popular piece, but I'm in the same boat. I'm, I'm sort of, there's just so much going on, right? And I know I'm not as good at that. I'm good at writing long form, dry research pieces, it turns out. <laughs> so, you know, it's really nice, uh, Jacqueline, to have something like Psycom Bites. Um, and I really appreciate too, uh, Ray and I, Ray interviewed me about one of my humor articles for mm-hmm. Psycom Bites. And I really appreciated that format um, because it's nice to have like an audio format sometimes or a written format sometimes. And that one, I guess, is is actually a video. Um, so that is really nice to have. But I do I do want to ask Chupé a bunch of questions about her research, because I think this article is really interesting uh, and it's very meta at this point. Right. Because Jason, who couldn't be here with us today, uh, we did forget to um introduce Jason. Jason McDermott uh, is also one of our co-hosts. He couldn't be here today, Patrick. I wonder why he couldn't be here today. Well, he usually counts, but today he doesn't count because he's taking a vacation to the beach. Uh, None of us are at the beach. Yes, none of us are at the beach. Instead, we're all in our closets uh, having way more fun than Jason. Jason, I hope you're listening. Um, But going back to Choupé's paper about podcasting, Choupé, can you tell us a little bit about the article? So in this article, we actually like uh, reached out to like uh, 147, I believe, like a uh, podcast channels and trying to ask them directly, like uh, uh, now you're doing science science related uh, like podcasts, like like how you feel like you're doing this, like what you wanted to get out of this, like what kind of strategy tactics, like it's a very, I would say practical piece, but like, you know, we, uh, view it from a more like a research and again from my interest like a communication quality perspective and I think we found some something really interesting and and that's something I like to do like once in a while I like to like reach out to the actual practitioners see how they are doing things how they are thinking things to see whether there is any gap or anything we have not thought about like from a research perspective so several years ago I did one with science bloggers, then these days, you know, podcasts getting very popular too. So, mm. so that's how kind of we came up with uh, like the decision to do one with science, like podcasts. I always wanted one to do one with YouTube, but never get that chance to do either. Yeah. That's interesting. And what? sorry, Jace, uh, Patrick. No, it's cool. Are you going to go TikTok next? Because <laughs> there's a lot of science I TikTokers. Know, I, we- I think I we started trying to put together kind of the, the biggest job is really like putting together the list. Like uh, we're trying to, to do that, but I mean, I don't know. Didn't happen yet. <laughs> yeah. Let me let me um mention where we're, we're going to link the articles, the show notes and a whole bunch of things that we've talked about in the show notes for this podcast. But if you're just listening and wanted to look up this paper, it's in the journal 
uh, Science Communication, and the title is Listening to Science, Science Podcasters' View and Practice in Strategic Science Communication. Shu Pei Yuan is the first author. Uh, the second author is Shaheen Kantawala, who I met at AEJ. I've just realized this. Um, it's very exciting. It is a closed source. So if you would like an, a copy of this article, you can tweet at Planet SciComm and Sarah will get that for you. Um, and the third author is Tanya Ott Fulmore. And, I would like, and it's great. I would like to mention today. I'm sorry. Hmm. No, you're fine. Keep going. Keep going. I was just going to point out today we're doing a podcast about a popular press article about an article about podcasts that talk to people who make podcasts. So we've gone all the levels down from the turtles back down to the bottom. It's turtles all the way down. That's right. Podcasters all the way down. <laughs> there you go. So I, I just want to mention like our third author, like uh, she used to be a very like long-term like podcaster too. Oh. So that's how like kind of we get more, not say insight because she, like SignCom wasn't her focus, but definitely get to know more a lot about how this works. And uh, when we designing questions, we want to make sure we speak their languages too. Yeah. So so that was like kind of part of the reason why we decided to to do this work. Like I feel more confident because she can, she, she can like, she's on Twitter, so she can reach out to some of the authors on Twitter too. Like we're trying all different ways to, to reach out to these authors. Yeah. Oh, very cool. I didn't realize that. That's, that's really great to know. So can you, can you tell us a little bit more about that part of it? Um, the reaching out to authors. I was reading the article uh, as I was preparing for our, our podcast. And I noticed that you got some really high, like 900, over 900 podcasts that, that you curated before you reached out? Right. So what we did is we just went to the list and the, like, I think uh, like you scroll down the uh, the iTunes, like uh, you can check like up to 60s. So then we just put them in Excel sheet, every single one and try to write down either they provided their email address. If not, that way to can stalk them on Twitter, <laughs> trying to find a way to contact them. So eventually we ended up around, I think if I remember correctly, about 10%, which like isn't high, but also considering like uh, some of them are like, these are top 60. So they're probably popular mm -hmm. and busy and stuff. So I appreciate every single one who, who is willing to take the survey. Uh, but yeah, so we have a very like, like earthy way of reaching out to them, like literally just like message them on Twitter. Yeah, and I think I was actually reading that twelve percent, uh, that twelve percent response rate, and I was I was very excited for you to get the twelve percent response rate actually, because even in kind of survey response rates, they're not they're not always very high, right? And so I thought twelve percent was great. Um, one thing, one thing I was wondering was, do you have a sense, or maybe you have some hypotheses around who might have responded versus who might not have? So I was thinking about like a lot of science podcasts are by organizations, media organizations, right? For example, NPR. We are clearly not NPR podcast, but hey, NPR, if you're listening, which you're probably not. Holler. Holler. Um, we could be. Uh, but in any case, I'm wondering <laughs> what types of bias you think might be present in the responses. Do you think do you think media organizations were more likely to respond? Do you think individual podcasters? Do you think like younger podcasts, older? Do you know what I mean? 
Well, this because I didn't research that particular part, so I would say my answer will be very could be just what I feel. Uh, I think it's probably more like individual podcasts, like a kind of thing, uh, and or like uh, we reach out to them personally. Another thing I want to point out is like you know there there are multiple people who are working at the same podcast station, so. Uh, even if like like for example like Sarah and Patrick you work at the same like podcast like it could still have slightly different views on mm-hmm. how, how things work so so this is more like voluntary kind of response that we do recognize there will be some kind of bias happening there but even that I don't think there were data on park science podcasts as all so anything is helpful I would yeah. say so, yeah yeah. Uh, yeah and I agree and that's a really good point about um both Patrick and I having different perspectives on podcasting because I think we do. And I think now to get into kind of the objectives and the tactics, we also probably have different objectives for, for this podcast, you know, um, and, and we intend to follow up on that in a forthcoming podcast where we're going to analyze our own podcast. (laughs) Yes, based on based on on the research that you did actually Shupei. So we have some oh. questions. But go ahead. Well, before that, <laughs> let me ask you oh, before no. we start <laughs> before we start today's forecast, like what do you think you want to get out of today's? Patrick, to you. <laughs> wait, wait a punt. Um no, that's fair. What did I want to get out of today's? I wanted this to be several things. I think my main goal was to highlight the work of others that are doing really great stuff and also to use it as a learning opportunity for myself to get better acquainted with it because I am not the practitioner nor the researcher. I am the enthusiast of the three of us. That's not true. You are a practitioner. Well, fair, fair. Um, I am a practitioner of papers, whereas Jason is a practitioner of papers and red pen black pen and you know other means and then sarah is now a practitioner i guess in that we're all on this podcast but also a a hardcore researcher so you know we were coming at it from different places and mine was more about you know getting the word out to all two of the grad students and jason who are going to listen to this and then also gaining some more familiarity but also getting to talk to people and say yeehaw psychom so I guess that would do, be. Do you generally excitement. say "yeehaw" psychom to people? I just just a. Well, okay, so for a friend. we've been. No, that's fair. <laughs> we've been watching Schmigadoon, which is a show that I think is amazing, and one of the things that Cecily Strong's character keeps saying is "yeehonk," <laughs> and I wasn't going to be able to work that one in, but I figured I could get close to it. So that comment definitely came from a music a musical theater place. Nice, nice. Um. What about Can you, Sarah? Add... Oh, sure. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. Add on. So as we are, you know, discussing our respective, you know, roles and connections to Psycom, you know, I want to, you know, share something that came up in the conversation that I had with Sarah, um, you know, where this uh, idea started, which is how blurry that line is between researcher and, you know, practitioner, um, so, and trainer. So I, you know, I think formally my title is trainer, Mm -hmm. but since, you know, talking more, more with Sarah, you know, I think I have shifted my perspective as like, well, the people that I'm training 
the people with, with which I'm having these conversations, you know, I think that I'm a practitioner in, in this sense, because I am trying to, you know, convey the science of science communication. And I'm trying to, to tell them about best practices. And, you know, I try to apply these same principles of uh, goals, objectives, tactics, you know, evaluation to my, you know, my own trainings. And so, you know, as I am reading, you know, science communication research and even science communication bites from which I learn a lot from papers that I wouldn't normally have read, not only is like, oh, you know, hey, that's interesting, but what can I learn from this? How can I apply this to, you know, what I consider now my own practice, which is so blurry with with training. So I think, you know, we all have um, a place in like overlapping Venn, Venn diagrams there. I wonder if the line between practitioner and trainer is a little bit more is blurrier, right? I'm waving my hands like everybody can see this on the podcast, which clearly they cannot, um, is blurrier than researcher and practitioner. I, I, I tend to, because my sort of initial thought Jacqueline, when you asked that question, was that they're not at all. That was kind of my like gut reaction to that uh, in that they are they're distinct, like researchers see themselves as researchers and then practitioners also you know, see themselves as practitioners. But I wonder about practitioners and trainers and maybe there's maybe there's just nuance in those lines. Right. So I'm trying to think of. So is this a research question surrounding identity? I, well, I can tell you maybe more concretely, we know what I mean by that, which is, you know, as we're thinking about goals and, you know, um, you know, objectives and tactics. So I am interested broadly as a trainer in promoting equity within um, academic technical mm -hmm. communication. So, um, but then I have to consider who am I talking to and how are they going to respond to that? So that might be my goal. But I can't, you know, use the tactic of, you know, it's really important to um, consider inclusion in science communication for someone who uh, doesn't think that's a problem or who might tune out if I start to talk about that. So instead, I try to approach it from, well, um, the same principles uh, that apply for inclusion. Let me think about what those are and say, and, and think, how can I apply those or communicate those in a way that will resonate with the values of the people that I'm training? So uh, you need to learn these communication tactics. You have to consider who your audience is, which means that you need to think about how they might emotionally respond, which means you first need to be aware of emotions, um, which means that, you know, you've you need to be aware of like what's happening in, you know, in your body. And if I just start to go through all that for the sake of, you know, inclusion, someone might roll their eyes, but then I say, okay, but that is going to help you determine whether or not you are being effective because how they emotionally respond is going to determine whether or not they pay attention to the rest of your talk and whether they're going to come up and ask you questions afterwards, or they're going to provide you funding, or they're going to give you that job. And if you're not aware of that, you are missing a huge opportunity to be effective. Mm. And I don't even go into the inclusion part, but I'm hoping that through that practice, um, they will start to pay attention to, you know, emotionality in a way that they otherwise wouldn't have, which is an important component for inclusion. So I'm thinking about like, based on all the research that I've read, what do I need to think about my audience and how do I need to switch my objectives and goals and tactics, you know, based on that. So 
in that sense, like I feel very much like mm-hmm. a practitioner. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, and, and the trainer. So that, so that was my like specific concrete example. Yeah, that, I that makes a lot about. of sense. And, and, and for my part, and this is also gets at Shupay's question that I've been avoiding for the past five minutes um, about objectives. I see myself, uh, I mean, I, my, I am a researcher um, in this vein. I am a practitioner, but I would argue that I'm a pretty poor practitioner here, especially because my response to Shupay's um, question about objectives for this podcast is um, um, <laughs> we're going to figure it out for the next we're podcast. Fig- no, I, I, we sort of talked a little bit about this in one of our earlier episodes, maybe episode two. Somebody asked us about this, like, what is the goal? What is the objective of your podcast? And I was thinking a lot about um, uh, and maybe some of the genesis of this podcast might come about, right? The inspiration for this podcast for me was a data science podcast where a data scientist in industry and a data scientist in academia got together and they they have six years worth of podcasts now. Um, and they're just talking about their everyday lives. They're talking about trends in data science, you know, that affect both industry and academia. They're talking about the tools that they use. Um, and so for them, it's, it's, it's analytic tools, it's Python, it's R, it's, you know, other things. Um, but I, I had this vision of Planet SciComm being a similar type of podcast where it's a conversation between people who are uh, either doing science communication, doing science communication research, interested in science communication, and just talking about the tools that we use, the ways we got here, right? Because one of the things we talk about a lot in this field is professionalization. And how does professionalization happen if you're not a researcher? Like for Shupay and I, the the route to researcher is, I think, clearer, right? It's not super clear cut. It might be be becoming more clear cut. There are science communication programs, you know, now I know like I could have just, I could have got a master's and a PhD in communication. I would have been here much sooner, but my route to this was quite circuitous. And so, you know, it took a lot of kind of finding my way. Um, but I do think that maybe even the researcher track to profession, like professionalization track is more straightforward relatively than the practitioner track or the trainer track. Right. And so I think just having these conversations out in the open. Um, so maybe <laughs> the objective here is around awareness and we can talk a little more about that, Shupay, and maybe what our objectives um, could shift to. I also think that, you know, we think sometimes about objectives and goals as being static. And as the podcast develops and evolves, I'm hoping that our objectives also develop and evolve along with it. That was a long answer she paid for. I don't really know. Which is okay. I mean, that's something we found out in our studies too. Like, uh, and and uh, I, I think one thing I wanted to be clear is like, there's no expectations of that. Uh, you must set up a clear science, like communication related objective before you start doing things. Like, I, I don't think that's fair. And uh, for some of the podcasters, like the, the objective could be not science engagement related. The objective could simply 
about like I want to get a more more subscribers from mm. whatever I'm talking about today. So so that's okay. But because you're covering like science related topics, so we were hoping that what like throughout the study we found out that everybody recognized that they are covering science topics, so they are playing a role in this. Then they recognize that they might also achieve some level of like of like science engagement impact. So maybe then start to recognize, set up some objectives would be something yeah. along with whatever other things you consider, which, but however, we wanted to make it clear. It's not like, oh, you didn't do this. Why didn't you do this kind right. of thing? Okay. So, you know, that is, that's actually really helpful because I think, um, Sometimes I, I think about like the goals, objectives and tactics, and I think, oh, I can't do this unless I have a goal or I have an objective. Right. Um, but that's really helpful to hear that. You know, it, it, you don't always have to have something set in stone and, and it can change. Um, and so I think along those lines, since we're talking about the podcast, our, our podcast is a little bit different, I think, from the podcast you studied, because the podcast you studied were podcasts about science, correct? And our podcasts are uh, is one about science communication. It's a little bit meta, actually. So we're not really we don't really we talk about science and we talk about um the process of science in as much as it affects us in science communication, right? So for example, we've, we've talked about graduate school a lot <laughs> and graduate school experiences a lot. And that, for example, is something that tends to be um, similar across sciences, I think, generally, right? We have seminar classes, we have, you know, the same sorts of, uh, headaches and and challenges and and great things that happen right um but our podcast is is about science communication and so when i think about who the audience is i think about uh graduate students in science communication i think about anyone who's interested right you know doesn't matter where you are at in your career stage if you're interested in science communication here's three people right who are in it talking about what we do maybe not what we do on a daily basis because i i don't know that that would get anyone excited if i talked about what i did on a daily basis but um you know getting interested in science communication and um so one of the other questions i had was about podcast styles i i noticed you in the paper that you wrote about podcast styles there were five of them um can you say a little bit more maybe maybe share some examples of each type i was trying to think about i'm i'm not okay here's here's the irony i'm not a very avid podcast listener i listen to one or two podcasts but i also don't drive a lot um so I don't really get the opportunity to listen to podcasts a lot, maybe. Um, but could you say a little bit more about the styles of podcasts that you wrote about in that paper? Uh, give me one second. Sure, I yeah. will find out. Uh, so what happened is what we did is we uh, we asked them to self uh, pick like what style yours is uh, like. So that's how that that category came up. But like it was like kind of we give them some some examples of what style it, ah. it one is like. So that's what I'm trying to find out how we gave like the examples and uh, kind of stuff. Maybe we can go on some other questions. that will come back to this one. Uh, so I can yeah. find the examples I we use. Yeah, we can certainly do that. Um, one of the things in the regression table 
that uh, <laughs> that I looked at because I, I like regression tables. They make sense to me and my brain. Um, I was really interested in the use of humor and the use of emotional tone and what kinds of podcasts use that, which uh, was really great. In any case, part of that is because selfishly, my research is on humor and emotion and I need to know more because, you know, I need to know more. <laughs> but, um, okay, my notes suck, you guys, because, wait, that's not a swear word, right? No, you're fine. Oh, well, you want to know. Not one of the seven. You want to know a fun fact? The reason why we ask about that actually is because the line of research you're doing. <laughs> like, so I remember you did a, uh, quite a fun research about like humor and jokes around science communication. So that's the reason why we put out, put together that question. Oh, I mean, that's, really? <laughs> that's couple awesome. Of questions, but yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Because I was, I was actually really interested to see like which kinds of, um, you know, podcasts use humor and like, what are the, or who are the podcasters who are using humor? That was really um, interesting to me. And I, uh, it's funny to find out that that it's it's because I had some research out on humor. It's a little bit circular. Um, as I was saying, my notes suck because I don't actually have a question about that. I just have a note about like table table one is great, so interesting, right? Like, <laughs> oh, this is this is the worst kind of notes ever. Sorry, I think it also points to how this all came together, right? Sarah and I met because of humor and science communication, right? Jacqueline alluded to uh, emotions and emotional states um, earlier in this, and part of Shupe's question deals with humor, and it's based on work from Sarah. So, you know, I don't know that we realized that there was all this interconnection prior to starting this episode, but here we are. Here we are. I did not. So I'm glad that we, you know, have have spoken about this. It's definitely an insight into, you know, how this all complements each other and, and moves forward. I don't know that we're going to get a lot of universals out of it, but I think that humor and emotion is one of today's universals. So well done, everybody. Well done, us. The, well, the one thing I we as I mentioned, Shupe and I were at a at the AGMC meeting this past week. And um, we were in a session where someone was talking about, I think it was rhetorical tactics in COVID vaccination campaigns uh, in various countries. And, and some countries used humor, right? Versus guilt appeals. Uh, and they, well, I don't know that there's a causal link, right? But the countries that used humor in their campaigns, in their ad campaigns around COVID vaccines also had higher rates of vaccination in those countries, right? Again, correlational because there are other cultural, there are many cultural differences between countries like Singapore and Australia and the US, right? Um, but, you know, uh, the countries that used guilt appeals versus those that used humor appeals or positive emotion appeals. Um, the ones that had positive emotion appeals appeared to have higher vaccination rates, which was kind of interesting to me. And I wonder, I wonder about that. I also think often about how humor is such a cultural uh, phenomenon, right? It's very different culturally, like British humor, very different from American humor. And so, you know, don't don't let me start talking about humor. <laughs> this is don't don't let me take over 
on this podcast because I can talk about humor. I can think out loud about humor for a long time, which makes it not very funny. <laughs> oh, you've definitely now outlined the basis of one of our upcoming episodes. No, don't do it. Thank don't you, do it. Sarah. Don't do it. Oh, we're going to do, no, do, do it. We're not going to do it. Okay, we won't do it. Okay, maybe so, we'll do it. Going back to the types of the style they use, and I found out the, the question how we asked. Oh, yeah. So we, yeah, so the journalistic style, we say reporting on science in a more traditional fashion, often, often interviewing researchers and getting outside comment. Editorial, which is presenting your opinion on issue or event as well as factual information. Translational explainer is translating or explaining science based on your own knowledge in the absence of traditional journalistic reporting, interviewing. Curation is curating information often linking to diverse sources with or without adding commentary yourself. Then the last one is analysis, collecting, creating, and or analyzing data. So I, if I remember correctly, this actually was created by the third author, Tanya, because she is in like podcast for a very long time. So I wouldn't be able to give this very accurate language myself. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. And so now I wonder, like, what does Planet Psycom, like which ones of those yeah, one are, are Planet Psycom? Um, because clearly there's some editorializing on our parts. Uh, well, we, yeah, you don't have to be just one thing either. So maybe that makes you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's a good point. We, d we probably don't have to be just one thing either. We did some journalistic stuff poorly because I have zero journalism background. Uh, mm -hmm. Nobody out me as you're listening to this. Whatever. I don't teach journalism classes anyway, um, because we just interviewed Choupet and Jacqueline. Uh, I, I definitely did some editorializing here. Um, but maybe that plays a little bit of a role in, in in what the objectives are for this podcast or what the objectives should be, perhaps. You know, maybe maybe after we've done a certain number, we can look back at them and we can go through and note objectives and tactics used in each one and see, like, what are we talking about here? What are we using? I think there's going to be one variable that we won't really be able to ever account for, which is, did we succeed? But, you know, we'll at least be able to see, ah, yes, we started off in, you know, exposition land and we ended up in yeah, analysis or yeah. journalism over here. Shupei, would you like a research project for three years down the line when we have oh, It's actually everyone's challenge, which is how do I know whether I, I succeed or not? Like the kind of assessment evaluation is hard for every single science communicator. Like you, it's very hard to grab them back and ask how you feel. Did you do those things yet? Like, like, so but that's another thing we're trying to figure out what would be the most realistic easy way to figure out whether so so that's why in the survey we did ask them like did you track down your audience and trying to find a way very few of them actually do survey a lot of times they don't like a lot of times but it makes sense once again sometimes the number of subscribers is more important for a channel like in, hmm. in like compared with the sign goal so so that's something we always wanted to like keep in mind before pushing like why don't you do that <laughs> right 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 yeah that makes sense Jacqueline do you have a, a thought about um how you think about evaluation for psychom bites so this is something that we have been chewing on and fortunately we have a science communication researcher on our team 
Um, so this could potentially turn into, um, you know, a project uh, related to, you know, Naveen's work. Mm. Um, but so far, um, you know, we, we really looked at two things and one of them is engagement on social media. And, you know, I don't have a lot of formal training in evaluation and I certainly am thinking, how does, you know, how do you correlate evaluation with things that we care about or turn it into some sort of, you know, causation that that's, that then actually is related to some sort of predictable, um, you know, useful outcome, um, you know, just because people are watching a lot of something or something shared, like, what does that mean? Um, and so that's not something that I know much about, but that's something that I have a lot of interest in. However, because we are in this slow phase and we're trying to build these relationships, we try to go um, and ask uh, participants in the conferences that we attend when we represent SICOM Bytes um, and say, you know, what do you what do you think? Is it useful? Uh, and I think eventually on some sort of regular basis, we would like to have a survey that goes out to our readers um, who are on our email list. Um, but we we definitely want to think about that more, more intentionally. And, you know, I just appreciate what you brought up, Shupei, so much that, you know, you can do SciComm without half, like without having you know, thought about um, objectives and goals and, and tactics. And like, you can, that can come later. Um, like if someone is interested in something, they should not let the, um, you know, the lack of formally developed, um, you know, goals, like prevent them from doing something that they find interesting because it's exploratory. They're excited. And, you know, I think so long as the intention is there to think about those things when they're trying to define their impact or, you know, or, or evaluation, like it's okay to do it retrospectively or, you know, to, to do it in like the forward thinking process. Um, and I think that just allows um, people to have the permission to, to explore and to do what they think is interesting. And it kind of validates their efforts. Like, you know, here we are uh, science communication professionals, researchers, and like, we're still thinking about these things. Like it's not easy. And like, that's, that that's okay. Um, it is like you said, Sarah, a process. Yeah, I appreciate that. And you know what? Now this has actually sparked another idea that Patrick um, brought up in the chat about thinking about evaluation and having a guest who does evaluation on our uh, next podcast. And I think, Jacqueline, you mentioned that as well. Um, but yeah. And I think that's a really great segue here because I think we've probably brought up like what three, four examples of future episodes during this. And so with that, I feel like we've gotten to a good ending spot with our time. And so I would like to very much thank our guests, Shupei and Jacqueline, for their excellent contributions and thought and work in science communication. Yay, SciComm. Awesome stuff. And good work, Sarah, today with your <laughs> excellent notes. Thanks. And thanks. And 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 Jacqueline says, yeehaw, Psycon. Yeah. So I just needed to verbalize that right there right. at the end. So anyway, thanks so much, everybody. And thanks for tuning in to this episode. And hopefully we'll have another one before 2023. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having us.